0: The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. All right, well, let's, uh, let's get right to work. If you have a Bible, open it with me to the book of Ephesians there in your New Testament. We're going to be in the second half of chapter one, as Kenny just said. The title of my message for you tonight is what God wants you to know. There are some things that God wants to distill within your heart. He wants you to know these things at the core of your being so that they shape your identity and form your life. So we're going to be talking about that, but to set things up, I wanted to tell this story about this concert violinist. His name was Joshua Bell. was from a handful of years ago. At the time, he was widely regarded as one of the greatest violinists in the world. He had even won a Grammy Award for his music. And he had won this thing called the Avery Fisher Prize, which is a prestigious award that's given to classical musicians for outstanding achievement. But as famous as he was as a musician, the instrument that he was lucky enough to steward or own, was just as famous as he was. He, he owned a 300-year-old Stradivarius violin, this, this world-famous violin. If you've heard anything about those, his instrument was valued at over $4 million. And anyways, one day this guy decided to, to do an experiment just for fun. He threw on a baseball cap and pulled out his Stradivarius violin. And he went to a Washington D C subway and he began to to play his music, just busking, seeing how much money he could make. He put out his his case in front of him. If you've seen those guys do that kind of thing at the subway. So he played for about 45 minutes. And just so you know, I went back on YouTube and found a video of him playing and listened to it, and you can watch it. His name's Joshua Bell if you want to check it out. And it was just incredible to watch this scene, because as he's playing, the music is filling and just reverberating and bouncing off the walls in this subway station. And a thousand or more people are just walking by, not even giving him a second glance. Few people even stopped. A few pennies were thrown into the case, but at the end of 45 minutes, he'd made a total of $32.17. And it's crazy to think that here you have this world-class musician playing this incredible instrument, playing the most beautiful music. And by and large, the people walking past him didn't even recognize the value and beauty of what was right in front of them. And the reason I share that story is because it's going to tie into what Paul does in the second half of Ephesians 1 here. You see, I think there is a danger for all of us as believers And that danger is that we would do exactly what those people did with what we've learned about what God has done for us, who God says we are. You see, last week, if you were here, in Ephesians chapter 1, Paul laid out for us in detail all of these spiritual blessings that belong to us because of who we are in Christ, And he went to great lengths to outline and and to to, to kind of walk through. This is who God says you are. He says you are chosen. He says you are chosen. Special, He says you are redeemed. He says you are forgiven. He says you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He says that we've been adopted into God's family. He talks about how we've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. These are each one of them worthy of our attention and worthy of our awe. And every one of these things is gloriously true of every person in this room who is a believer in Jesus Christ here tonight. Yet sadly... There are many believers who just kind of walk past these truths and they go unobserved, unappreciated, unrecognized. Instead of allowing those things to impact our worlds and shape our lives, for many believers they just kind of walk by and don't give them a second thought. And Paul was aware of this potential danger, this pitfall that we're so prone to fall into, to just not really give our attention to these things. And so he stops and pauses before moving on to his next thought. And in the second half of chapter 1, he prays for the Ephesian believers and us by extension. And the focus of his prayer is that we would really know and that God would enlighten the eyes of our understanding and open the eyes of our heart and give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation concerning the truths that he had just talked about. So that's what this prayer is all about here in Ephesians chapter one. Let's go ahead and read it together. Paul says, for this reason, in other words, in light of everything I've just told you, Ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I've not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And here's his prayer. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you might know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart might be enlightened in order that you might know the hope To which he has called you the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people and his incomparably great power for us who believe that power it's the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So this is Paul's prayer for these believers. And the thrust of it, again, is that God would open our hearts to really grab hold of the truths that he's just shared. And there are several things that stick out to me about this prayer. But the first thing that strikes me about Paul's prayer is just how different it is from the prayers that that, that we so often pray, or I so often pray, I should say. For, for, For one thing, the driving force of his prayer, or the thing that moved him to pray for these believers in the first place, it's different than what typically drives me to pray. Usually when I pray for someone, it's because they tell me about some struggle that they're experiencing, some hardship that they're enduring or some trial that they're facing. And they they share this with me and I say, I'll be praying for you. And that's usually the driving impetus behind many of my prayers for others. But this prayer is different because instead what Paul hears is that they're doing well and that's what inspires him to pray. That's that's a different kind of prayer. Specifically, it says that he heard about their faith in the Lord and their love for one another. He heard about their faith, he heard about their love. And a couple of verses later in this prayer, we read that he, he, he talked about the hope of their calling. So now we have faith, hope, and love, the three greatest virtues in the kingdom of God. And Paul says, you guys are overflowing with faith towards God. You're overflowing with love for one another. And God has instilled within you a hope about the future. And that just causes me to want to thank God for what he's doing in you. See, they had, they had faith looking back in what Jesus did for them at the cross. They had hope about the future. And those two things worked together to produce a present love in their everyday lives. And, and, and Paul says, this moves me to thank God for you. But it's not just the driving force of Paul's prayer that makes it different. So too is the content of what he prayed. You see, again, when I think about my own prayers, oftentimes they're driven by changes that I would like to see God make, either in my life or in the lives of the people I'm praying for, circumstances that I'd like him to address, or things that I want him to do for me. And of course, there's nothing wrong with asking God to do those things in your life. But again, when I look at and compare my prayer with Paul's prayer for the Ephesians, I see that he didn't ask God for any of those things he doesn't ask god to change their circumstances which they had difficult circumstances he didn't ask god to help them avoid persecution which many of them were facing persecution he didn't ask god to give them an easy life or to give them better jobs or to bless them financially not that there's anything wrong with any of those things but when you look at paul's prayer and by the way when you look at all of paul's prayers in the new testament you'll never once find him asking god to change anybody's circumstances again The thrust of his prayer is that God would open their eyes to give them understanding, to see how blessed they really were. Specifically, he prays that they would be enlightened by God to know three things. The hope of their calling, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and that they might know his incomparably great power, which is at work in those of us who believe. This is what Paul prays. I want you to know the hope of your calling, the inheritance of God in his holy people, and the incomparably great power that's at work in those of us who believe. And I want to talk about each one of those things with you this evening. But before we get into that, there's something else that he says he wants them to know. And and I want you to note with me, and the first thing that Paul wants them to know better is the Lord. He says it right there in verse 17, I keep asking that God, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious father may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Why? So that you might know him better. He alludes to the fact that, yeah, you already know God. You have a relationship with God. He's writing two Christians here, but he says, "I, I know that you can know him better and that's my heart for you. It's encouraging to know that no longer, no matter how long you've been walking with the Lord, you can always know him better. There's always more of him to know, more of him to learn about, more of him to grow in. And Paul, just so you know, he was writing from personal experience when he talked about this growing desire, this longing to know the Lord better. It was a personal journey that he had been on for some time by this point in his life. It was a journey that had started some Years previous, about 30 years earlier or so, Paul, his name was Saul at the time. He was on his way to Damascus to arrest Christians. He was a persecutor of the church and he had this radical encounter in which he was knocked off the horse that he was riding on by a blinding light. And out of the light, a voice came that said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? You see, Saul was persecuting Christians and Saul being blinded by this light, he says, Who are you, Lord? Which, by the way, that's the most important question you'll ever answer. Who is the Lord? You have to determine that because everything else in your life flows from the answer to that question. Who are you, Lord, is what Saul asks. And this is the response he gets. I'm Jesus. I'm the one you've been persecuting. And you know what Paul's second question was? What do you want me to do? Who are you, Lord? And what do you want me to do? The two most important questions you'll ever ask in life. Who is the Lord and what is his plan for your life? And that encounter set Paul on this mission to know the Lord who had accosted him that day when he was on his way to Damascus. And he spent the rest of his life trying to get to know the Lord and fulfill his call on his life. Some 30 years later, Paul is is now a seasoned Christian. He's done ministry all over the known world by that time, but he was still seeking to know the Lord better. In one of the letters that he wrote to to, to one of these churches that he had planted all over Europe, he he wrote this letter to the church in Philippi. And keep in mind, again, at this point, Paul's been walking with the Lord for a really long time, and yet in that letter, one of the things he said was this, Philippians 3.10. I still want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformed to his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. But take note of that phrase, I I want to know him. He'd written books of the Bible at this point of his life. He knew the Lord, and yet he still felt like he was a rookie. He understood that he hadn't arrived yet. He was still pressing forward, seeking to know the Lord more and more and more. Then you fast forward a few more years and you come to the very end of Paul's life. And he writes a letter to a protege of his, a guy that he'd been discipling, a guy by the name of Timothy. And now Paul realizes that his time is short. He'd walked with the Lord at this point for many, many years. And this is what he wrote to Timothy finally at the end of his life. He says, 2 Timothy 1.12, I know whom I have believed. And I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I've entrusted to him until that day. I love that. Paul says, I know him. I know him now, like I know my best friend. It took a lifetime, but he got there. He'd spend his whole life saying, I just want to know him. I want you to know him. I want everyone to know him. I want to make him known. And then he comes to the end of his life and he goes, I know him, and he's trustworthy. He can hold on to that which I've committed to him. But I find it telling, too, that the Greek word that Paul chose to use there for when he said, I know whom I've believed. He didn't use the Greek word that would have indicated a full and perfect and precise and complete knowledge. He could have used that word. It's the word that he uses here in Ephesians 1. It's the word epignosis. And it speaks of, again, a precise and perfect knowledge. But Paul says, I I don't know him like that. I know him well. And so the word he used was eido, E-I-D-O. And it speaks of a mature love. It speaks of an intimate love, but not yet a perfect love. He realized even after a lifetime, there was still more of God to learn and know. And ultimately, guys, we're going to get to heaven and it's going to take us all of eternity to grasp even the outer fringes of how good God is if we only could understand and know that it's going to take forever for God to unfold to us all the aspects and all the characteristics of his goodness towards us. Have you ever looked at a diamond under that jewel lighting that they have in jewelry stores? And every time they turn the diamond ever so tenderly, it causes the light to reflect and refract in different ways and causes it to sparkle. And you see new facets of the diamond. That's what it's like walking with the Lord. I heard one person describe it this way, walking with Jesus, growing in our knowledge of him. It's like finding a little creek, and you follow that creek as it meanders its way down a path, and eventually the creek joins other creeks, and those creeks then form a stream, and now you're walking alongside of this stream, and the water's a little wider, and the water's a little deeper, and eventually that stream joins with other streams, and they eventually form a river. And now you're walking by a river that's wider and deeper than anything you could have imagined. And as you follow that river, it joins other rivers and gets wider and deeper until eventually you land at the shores of the ocean, and you're looking at the vast expanse of the ocean. It's kind of what it's like learning about the Lord. As a new believer, you're like, wow, this is incredible. Look what God has done. He saved me. And then you follow the creek, and you get to know the Lord a little more, and you get more understanding of how blessed you are, and how good he is, and how great his grace is. And the stream becomes a river, and you wade into the depths of that river, and the water gets deeper, and the water gets wider. And eventually, you come to the end of your life, and you land on the shores of eternity, and you're like, wow. I haven't even begun to exhaust your greatness and your goodness. That's what it's like walking with Jesus. Paul says, I want you to know him better. So a question, do you know him? If you don't, you can start your relationship with Jesus right now. It's as simple as asking him into your life. Asking him to be your Lord, to be your Savior, to forgive your sins, to write your name in the Lamb's Book of Life. And the moment you do that, your life will be forever changed. Your eternal destiny will forever change. And it will set you on a path that will lead you to the gates of heaven and to an encounter with Jesus Christ. But if you do know him, and I hope that you do, is there more of him that you need to know? Absolutely. The answer is absolutely. So keep pursuing Keep growing. That's the first thing that Paul says he wants them to know. The next thing that Paul prayed for the Ephesian believers to know was the hope of their calling. Do you know the hope of your calling? If you look at chapter 2 of Ephesians, just one page over in my Bible, one of the ways that Paul describes unbelievers is he he's characterizes them as those who have no hope. One of the defining characteristics of someone who doesn't know Jesus is that they have no hope. They have nothing to hope for and no one to put their hope in. This life is as good as it gets and you might as well live like a crazy person because when you die, that's it. There's nothing on the other side of the curtain to look forward to. But when you give your life to Jesus, he plants a hope within your soul that this life is not all that there is, that this is as bad as it's going to get. And that when you die on this world, you'll open your eyes and be in the presence of Jesus and his father and the angels in heaven. This is the hope that we have and carry as believers. Now, I should point out that the world's definition of hope, when we talk about you need to know the hope of your calling, I always like to point out that we're not talking about worldly hope here, right? Because biblical hope is markedly and strikingly different than worldly hope. Worldly hope is barely any different than wishful thinking. It's, you know, just kind of cross your fingers, knock on wood, and hope for the best. But biblical hope is different. Biblical hope is the confident expectation that what God has promised, he will perform. Let me say that again. Biblical hope is the confident expectation that what God has promised, he will perform. Now, in the context of this prayer, the hope that Paul is talking about is the hope of heaven. Here's How the apostle Peter talked about our hope in heaven in relation to one another in the letter that he wrote. This is 1 Peter 1, 3 and 4. He said, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope. We have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. This is the hope of every believer. It's our inheritance. It's a living hope. Think back to a time in your life when you were really looking forward to something. So I was, I was trying to think of an example of this. Um, like where you were counting down the minutes and the days when you were a kid, maybe it was Christmas, I have some friends, uh, Maddie and Lucas. Lucas is our junior high pastor here he 's a great friend and does a great job with our junior hires and Maddie works at the front desk and does a great job up there and, and so I see her a lot because my office is right next to the front desk, and i 'll walk past her and And in the months leading up to their wedding, it was kind of fun, because at any moment you could ask Maddie, how many more days until the big one? And she would be able to tell you right off the top of her head without even thinking about it, it's this many days. It's 87 more days. And she had an app on her phone that was counting down the days until the day she would be Mrs. Silva. And then as the day grew even closer, her friends made her a daisy chain. You remember the daisy chains? She had a daisy chain in her office, and every day, her and her girlfriends would get together, and they'd cut off another link on the daisy chain. As the day grew closer and closer and closer, it was all she could do to contain herself. They were so excited, so in love. They wanted to be married. And you know, as a believer, that's kind of the attitude The expectancy with which we ought to live with one foot on earth, but our other foot firmly planted in the heavenly realms. We're seeking a building and a builder whose foundations are eternal. We're living for the kingdom. Our home is not on this earth. We're not of this world. We're living for heaven. You see, sometimes I think it's easy for us to forget that heaven's a real place. Like, we think of this as real, like we can touch it, it's physical, it's tangible. But you know what the Bible says? The Bible says this stuff is all fading away. It says it's gonna burn up with an intense heat. But that which is eternal is spiritual. It's the reality. It's a place by defined, in some senses, by what's not going to be there. You know what's not there that makes heaven so great? No more tears no more death, no more sorrow, no more cancer. Somebody say hallelujah. No more coronavirus, no more mourning. There's a lot of stuff that won't be in heaven. No more war. But it's not just defined by what won't be there. There's a lot of great things that will be there. When we get to heaven, the Bible says that the streets are made of gold. Now, why would the Bible say that? Like, Ooh, golden streets. No, no, it's saying the thing that we prize and value and esteem so highly down here, gold. Men have fought wars over gold and treasure. The stuff that we esteem down here, man, that's like asphalt in heaven. (laughs) But beyond that, you know what else is there? our loved ones who have gone before us and they've passed away and they knew the Lord and we're going to be reunited with friends and family and we're going to have this sweet reunion with them and not only them but all the saints from generations gone by. We're going to see Moses and we're going to see Paul and we're going to worship next to David and Jonathan and and Peter and all the disciples and it's going to be fantastic. But you know what the greatest thing about heaven is? It's where Jesus is. You see, you take Jesus out of heaven, it's no longer heaven. What makes heaven heaven is the presence of Jesus. And because he's there and because heaven's real, we have hope. It gives us hope, not just for then and there, but for here and now. Let me tell you how knowing that heaven is coming, the hope of your calling gives you confidence and strength for here and now. Because you're, you're, you're going to experience trials. You, you're probably walking through some right now. Lord knows I am. And as you walk through the muck and the filth and the mess of this world, it's so encouraging to know that, hey, I'm going to heaven. The hope of my calling is sure and steadfast. And that gives me hope. I can hold on to that. We need to have this hope to captivate our hearts. I found a poem that I think just kind of encapsulates what I've been trying to say. The poem is called Just a Glimpse. I found it today on the internet, and here's how it goes. Lord, give me just a glimpse of how heaven's going to be. Let me peek into the room you've reserved for me. Let me see the streets paved with forever peace. Let me gaze upon the path where grief will finally cease. Lord, give me just a glimpse into the land of no more fear. Let me glance into the light that'll dry each and every tear. Let me see the pathway where you'll walk with me. Let me have a quick look where sorrow I'll not see. Lord, give me just a glimpse. Part the clouds so I can see my family and my friends who are waiting there for me. Let me see your mansion, the glory of your throne, Lord. Give me just a glimpse into my eternal home. (laughs) Praise the Lord. The hope of our calling. You need to know it. You need to be... Rock solid in your knowledge and understanding of the hope of your calling. But in the second half of verse 18, we get to see the next thing that Paul wanted the Ephesians to know and us, and that is the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Now, that's a mouthful. So what is Paul talking about? Immediately, your mind probably travels to, okay, inheritance. Paul's been talking about our inheritance as believers throughout chapter one. So that's probably what he's talking about here, right? Wrong. Actually, if you look closely, what he says is, I want you to know the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Who is his inheritance? We're talking about God's inheritance. And that inheritance is his holy people. That's you and I. So what is Paul saying? He goes, I want you guys to know it's important that you get this. That you see and you understand and you know that you are God's treasure. That he values you immensely, immeasurably. Not that you have any intrinsic value in and of yourself, but in the same way that we place value on gold, God places value on you. Think of it like this. Imagine you're part of a gift exchange. I mean, imagine that you're in the Gates family and you draw out of the hat to see who you're buying a gift for and you get Bill. You're like, I've got to buy a gift for Bill Gates. Talk about buying a gift for the person who has it all. What do you get Bill Gates for Christmas? The the Mona Lisa, I don't know, the Hope Diamond, the Star of India. He has everything, and if he wanted something, he could go buy it. That's kind of like God. What do you give to the God who created the heavens and the earth? If he wants it, he snaps his fingers and he creates it. Yet you know what God says? we're his treasure we're his inheritance we're his possession and he holds us in his hands he goes oh i always wanted one of these and it's you imagine that you are his glorious inheritance in paul's prayer is that you would really understand that and know it and really grasp the extraordinary value that god places on you as his child but there's one more thing that paul prays that the ephesian believers would know And that is the incomparable greatness of his power to us who believe. This is is the big one. You see, in this final section where Paul talks about, I believe, starting in verse um, 18 and 19, he talks about God's incomparably great power. It's incomparable, incomprehensible. He uses four different words to describe the immensity of God's power, the enormity of it. The first word he uses for power is the Greek word dunamis. might recognize that root word. Dunamis, it's the same word from which we get our English word dynamin- dynamite. The story goes that Alfred Nobel, who was the man who discovered dynamite, when he first discovered this explosive element that was stronger than anything that the world had known up to that point. He was struggling to kind of find a word to attach to this power. And he had a friend who was a Greek scholar. And so he asked him if he thought of, or knew of any words that might be able to convey the meaning of explosive power. And he pointed Alfred Nobel to the Greek word dunabus. He goes, great, I'll grab hold of that. And that's what he named his invention, dynamite. So when you think of the the biblical word for power here, when Paul says his incomparable power, think of explosive dynamite power. That's the power that God wants you to know you walk with on a daily basis. Paul went on to say that this power that God has given us, it's the same power that was at work in Jesus when God raised him from the dead. Did you hear what I just said? The same power that was at work in Jesus on the third day when God raised him from the dead, that's the power that God has inserted within every one of you. Now we're not just talking about dynamic or dynamite power anymore. We're talking about power on a greater and a grander scale. I did some studying on this today and I, I found out that astronomers recently found evidence of what they say is the greatest known explosion in history. It happened in a distant galaxy cluster located about 390 million light years from here if you wanted to go check it out. But to give you some idea of just how big this explosion was, they say that the blast radius from this explosion is about the size of 15 Milky Way galaxies. So you think of our situation here, and we're part of One solar system that is part of a cluster of galaxies that make up the Milky Way galaxy. If you could take 15 of those galaxies and stack them next to each other, 15 of them, that's the blast radius of this explosion. That's insane power on a scale that we can't even begin to comprehend. And yet that isn't the measure of power that Paul says has been placed in you. Something far greater in dynamic power has been placed in you. It's the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ himself. According to Paul, the power displayed at the resurrection is incomparable. Nothing else even comes close. And that's the power that God has given us. And the reason that you need to grasp this, and you need to understand this, and you need to know it, is because some of you feel powerless right now. You feel powerless to change your circumstances powerless to beat this addiction, powerless to beat this depression, powerless to come against the forces of evil that surround you, powerless in your marriage, powerless to overcome anxiety, powerless against adversity. And what you need to know is that God has already provided you with a power source that is far greater. It's powerful, more powerful than hell. It's more powerful than sin. It's more powerful than death. And it's what defeated Satan. And Paul says, I want you to see this power. I want you to grasp it, and I want you to know it. And again, I'm going to belabor this point for just another minute because it's so important. You see, what, what I see, what I find, and what happens is there are a lot of Christians who are walking around acting as though Jesus was still buried in the tomb. They have wonderful theology, and they would never say it like that. You know what I mean? They would never say that they believe that he's still in the doom. No, they would tell you, I believe Jesus rose from the dead. But it's their actions that speak louder than their words, because they're living these anemic, weak powerless lives, and so their actions would tell you that they live as though Jesus were still in the grave. They aren't walking in resurrection power, and and you know that because their life is filled with frustration. Because in their Bible, they read about this, this resurrection power, but in their life, they experience daily defeat, and so there's this discord, this dissonance. In fact, psychologists have a term that they use to describe this experience. They call it cognitive dissonance. Let me explain that. Dissonance is a musical term when you have two notes that aren't in harmony with one another. That's, that's not music. You play two notes that aren't in the same family tree, and it's just noise. And, and your, your heart and your body and your world are, are designed to long for harmony and continuity and consistency. So that's dissonance. Now, cognitive dissonance happens in your head and your heart when what you believe to be true doesn't line up with what you're experiencing in your life. That's cognitive dissonance, and it creates frustration. It creates kind of anger. It creates this this low-grade feeling of just discord in your life. Have you ever been there? And the problem, according to Paul, is that believers who are walking in this dissonance aren't tapping into the power that has been available to them. Instead of relying on his resurrection power, maybe, maybe perhaps you're still trying to walk in your own power, your own strength. Because he has all the power. But if you're walking in defeat, that means you're, you're looking to something else. And I thought of an illustration to kind of play this out. And I'll leave you with this. So think about a balloon. I went to Ralph's today and picked up a balloon. Okay. Now, if you wanted to keep this balloon floating in the air, you might take it, and I'm going to blow it up. All right. That's good. Bigger? All right, that's good enough, right? Give me a second here. You're getting a kick out of that. You're getting a kick out of that. All right, we got this balloon. So I want to keep this balloon in the air. I'm going to rise above my challenges. And so you can hit it. Oh, boy, we're going to lose it, aren't we? There's a lot of wind up here, you guys. And this is what a lot of Christians do. They're trying to overcome their challenges. They're trying to keep themselves afloat, so to speak. And they're sitting here and they're hitting the balloon. They're blowing the balloon. They're trying to keep themselves afloat, trying to stay head above water. And it's exhausting. And there's this exertion of gravity that is forcing the balloon down and every time they go up they come back down and you have this yo-yo experience in your Christian walk where you're up one day and you're down the next and and you're walking in victory and then the enemy takes you out and you're walking in victory and you're reading your bible and God's happy with you and then you fall and he's he's mad at you and this is your Christian experience up and down and you're like I'm trying and eventually you're like I'll oh, forget it it doesn't work <laughs> it's not worth it God tells me I'm a victorious Christian, but I keep falling on my face. This is like self-will. This is like willpower. And we're doing our best. But if you really wanted to, to rise above, there's, there's an alternate. There's an alternative that you could go to. And I, I brought a few of these guys over here. Yeah, I got another prop for you tonight. Helium balloons. Now, when you... Infuse the balloon with helium instead of hot air from my lungs. Now you're exerting a power into the balloon that is greater than the force of gravity that is being exerted on the balloon. And it's not any effort at all. It just rises above. And this is what it's like when you walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, when you trust in the risen Lord, when you rest at the foot of the cross, when you see the victory is already yours because what Jesus has done for you. Somebody's going home with a balloon tonight. (laughs) Put this in your room. But do you guys see what God, why God wants you to know this stuff? He wants you to know. He wants you to walk in it. He wants you to experience it. And it's not just, it's not just a head thing. It can't just be a head thing. Far too many Christians are educated so far beyond their experience level. God says, I need you to know this. So that's what Paul prays for. You say, I want that. I want to walk in that. I want to experience that. I want to live for heaven. I want to know the hope of my calling. I want to grow in my understanding of Jesus. I want to walk in resurrection power. How do I do it? Paul tells us, you pray. You ask for God to open the eyes of your heart because it's already yours. Ask him to give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. So that's what we're going to do right now. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we give you this time, these moments that we've shared together. We ask that you would take your word and like an arrow, aim it at each and every heart in here, Lord, where there are those of us who know this stuff intellectually, but haven't walked in it experientially. Lord, would you make us aware of that right now that you want more for us? that our experience falls short of your design. For those of us who are walking in defeat, Jesus, this is the moment where we're declaring our victory because of the cross. We're stepping over the line and into that place of wholehearted surrender. Some of you, this is going to be your breakthrough moment. I believe that right now in this moment, I declare it by faith that God is opening hearts He's opening eyes. He's opening the floodgates of heaven. That breakthrough is coming to your heart. Breakthrough is coming to your family. Breakthrough is coming to your mind. Jesus is setting captives free in this room tonight. Praise your name, Lord. I just thank you. I celebrate the work that you're doing. You are the risen King, and you are here. And we're not just playing games. This isn't just a way to fill a Wednesday night so we can sing some songs and do some karaoke and listen to a guy talk and then Go home. Lord, we're here to meet and to interface and to connect with the living Lord, the risen King. Jesus, you're here. You're moving in every heart, up and down each and every row, bringing conviction, encouraging, strengthening. Would you do what only you can do Jesus? Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.